greet all of you in the name of Christ. It is my privilege this morning to share with you from God's holy word. And this is a message that as I looked at, I'll have to tell you just a little background. I grew up in a very, very traditional background, uh, one that was very legalistic, to say the least. And I suppose that is what really motivated me to tackle this subject of biblical truth. We've entitled Biblical Truth versus Traditions of Men. And I wondered, is that something that faced us here at Redemption Hill? Probably, I thought, you know, I don't probably see a lot of basically legalism. But then I got to thinking, you know what? Yeah, I think it does. There is hypocrisy, and that's really what causes legalism in each and every one of us. We have hypocrisy there. So I think it will find that we'll gain much through this study together this morning. Before we continue at all, I think we'd come to God, I feel it, need to come to him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, just now I come to you, uh, just trusting you, Father. Realize that I'm just mere man, weak and undone, lost without you. Just a sinner saved by grace. And Father, I thank you this morning that you have redeemed me. I thank you, Father, that you have given us the biblical truth that we can live by. That you have given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Father, we realize that there was a a problem that we're going to study here in the book of Mark that the Pharisees and the scribes had, and I think that we see it in the hearts of each one of us today, probably. I know I have it. And so, Father, I just ask that you will uh, open our hearts and our minds to your word and teach us, Father, what your Holy Spirit has to teach each one of us. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be changed. And I thank you for what you will do in Jesus Christ and his name. Amen. And just a little introduction, a little background on this subject. We find that whenever truth of God's word confronts those who are legalistic and bound by man-made rules, There's a violent collision that will result. Whenever divine truth challenges human tradition, a fierce clash will happen. Whenever scripture exposes empty religion, there will always be a conflict. And that's what we saw here. Such a conflict shook Europe, and that's what ignited the Protestant Reformation in the time of the 16th century. It was caused by the return to biblical truth after centuries of empty tradition. The noted church historian Philip Schaeff describes the crisis this following way. 
He says the objective principle of Protestantism maintains that the Bible, as the inspired record of revelation, is the only infallible rule, faith, and practice in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church of Scripture and ecclesiastical tradition as the joint rules of faith. This was at the core of the Reformation. This was the clash between biblical truth and traditions of man. So the question might be asked, and I think we need to ask that, what is truth and what is tradition? First of all, we find that truth is whatever God says and whatever is consistent with God himself as revealed in the Bible. That is truth. All truth is measured by the self-disclosure of God's glory. God himself is truth. He alone is the absolute standard, and he alone is the final judge of all truth. And there's several scriptures we have. Psalms 31.5 says, God is the God of all truth. Exodus 34.6, who is abounding in truth. John 14.6 says, Jesus likewise is the truth. John 17.7 says, the Bible is the truth. And John 24 424 says, therefore, all who worship God must do so in spirit and in truth. So it's very plain that God is truth. By contrast, tradition tells us is any man-made rules or regulations contrary to the word of God that must be kept either for salvation or for sanctification. Man-made rules, works, so to speak. Whenever anyone yields the high ground of truth and descends to the low ground of tradition, the result is spiritual death. No one, no one can be saved or sanctified except by the truth. Now this conflict we see between truth and tradition is basically what happened during the days of Christ's first coming. The Pharisees and the scribes elevated their own religious rules above the inspired teaching of Scripture. In so doing, Jesus declared that the traditions of the elders had invalidated the commandments of God. Here we see the longer a person has been held captive in man's empty religious tradition that is devoid of biblical truth, the more that one will fight and fight to maintain it. I've experienced it. That is why someone who has been steeped and raised in a tradition of legalism, for them to accept biblical truth, it's rare. It hardly happens. It's difficult. They cling to their traditions. They wrap those traditions around them. They become part of them. They don't want to let go. Their mind is already made up. Don't confuse them with the facts. That's what happens. That is what happened to the Pharisees. On the outside, they were white as snow. Jesus called them whited sepulchers. But where it really mattered on the inside, they were like dead men's bones. They stunk. They stunk. Let us look at this encounter in Mark 7, 1 through 
13, between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, it is an ongoing clash that continues to this present day and time between divine truth and man-made tradition when tradition is in opposition to the Word of God. We're going to read Matthew 7, 1 through 13. Thank you, Harry, for reading Matthew 23. There was a mistake in our bulletin today. It said 1. I'm sorry. Mark 23. I'm sorry. Was it Mark 23? It was Matthew 23, wasn't it? Yeah. First we had Matthew 1, I think, which would have been about the genealogy. (laughs) I don't know how that came about, but anyway. (laughs) We're here anyway. So Mark 7 Verses 1 through 13 is what we're going to speak about today from. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You, have, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, which is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. You see, it's interesting. We find in verse 1 is the investigation. The Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. If there was ever two groups in human history that clung to their legalistic traditions, it was these two parties. The Pharisees was the most conservative sect in all Israel. They were fiercely committed to observing the most minute details of the law. Oh, they knew them. The fundamentalists of the day, they believed in the divine inspiration of God, the sovereignty of, of Scripture, the divine inspiration of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, His supernatural activity in the world, and the coming kingdom to God and the earth. And you might say, boy, they had things pretty well together. And they were commended in that area. But there was a problem. They added their own made rules to the truth. Given enough time, 
Their legalistic additions became traditions that crowded out the truth. Their self-made religious code never required examining and cultivating their own hearts before God. It did not require personal pursuit of true inward holiness. Their tradition never called for heart-searching repentance. It never called for the confession of sin. The word Pharisee means separatist. Separate. And boy, they were separate. They separate. These separate individuals sought to remove themselves from the defilements of the world. Instead of going into the world and to be a witness for Jesus Christ, they isolated themselves from people in an effort to keep from sinning. Due to their, due to their rigid adherence to their religion, they became blindly self-righteous. Blindly self-righteous. They looked at themselves as one of purity and everyone else in an ocean of depravity. They were sinless. Everybody else were sinners. Some would not even mix with other believers. Can you imagine that? They even thought that those other believers who were out of step with their perceptions of what true spirituality is, they wouldn't even mix with And furthermore, you know what they even thought? They even thought that they weren't even saved. If you didn't believe just like I did, or you weren't in my church, you weren't even saved. They were an us four and no more group. The scribes, on the other hand, were not a sect as the Pharisees were, but they were a profession of compri comprised of lawyers. They were a bunch of attorneys. And you know what happens there? They studied the law of Moses, plus gave themselves to mastering their own religious regulations. And they were good at it. You know how an attorney does he can take the law and, boy, he can just bend it and manipulate it however he wants to suit him, himself. And that's what they did. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they found themselves together much of the time because they had the same bent towards legalism. And they had an inflexible adherence to the law of Moses. Verse 1 says that they came from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the headquarters for the religious elite in Israel, the holy city where the temple was built, the Torah was kept, the Sanhedrin presided, and where Jewish traditions thrived. These Pharisees and scribes traveled from Jerusalem with much animosity towards Christ. There were specific reasons the Pharisees and scribes despised the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Jesus proclaimed the scripture itself and he gave its proper interpretation. Second, Jesus claimed to speak from God, the very words the Father had given him. And third, Jesus did not honor their traditions, especially pertaining to the Sabbath. And fourth, Jesus associated with sinners. Fifth, Jesus exerted great influence over people, the people. And six, Jesus was perfectly holy. And all these things 
seem to unmask their religious pretense and their sinful, stinking hearts. That's what happened. That's why they hated Jesus. All this, these religious leaders, they came to Galilee, was on a mission to defraud the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't come to sit at his feet. They didn't come to take notes and to learn of him, to know more about him, to search his scripture. They had no real interest in the truth, nothing whatsoever. Verse 2, upon they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Whew. They spied some of the followers of Jesus and noted that they had not subjected themselves to the ceremonial washings that required, was required by their religious rules. Heaven forbid. The disciples had violated one of their legalistic traditions. Something had to be done. This couldn't go on. There was such a large number of rules to be kept that the people had a difficult time remembering all of them. And worse, who in the world could maintain, maintain them all? It was impossible. They claimed that to be right with God, they had to keep all these laws, all these rules, and after his disciples had been in public contact with sinners, their rules claimed that they must rinse their hands in order to be cleansed from the moral contamination. Really, little has changed today. Those that are caught in the trap of legalism, they'll go to any length to defend their rules and their rituals. The more that religious people are tradition-bound in legalism, the more violently they will lash out against the one who speaks the truth. And we see it today. This battle against the truth is fought in many churches again and again and again. And my prayer is that we will never at Redemption Hill Church fall in to the traditions of men that we will hold only to the truth that is in God's word, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The explanation we find in verse 3. They explained about the ceremonial washings as follows. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands. This recollection had nothing to do with the Jews and their sanitary conditions. Their hands were clean. Instead, this practice points to their need to be spiritually cleansed from the daily association with sinners. By observing this tradition was pure religious superstition. There was no basic or basis for the truth. The Pharisees and the scribes felt that these additional traditions were like a fence placed around the law to protect it from passing away. They thought they could like put a fence around the, the Ten Commandments. But they, for, they failed to realize that I, the, Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says the grass withers and the flower fades away, but the Word of God abides forever. The Word of God will never fail. 
Their attempt to protect the law can be seen most clearly in their endless Sabbath, Sabbath regulations. We've, we've jotted a couple of them down here. <laughs> these, these are literally ridiculous, and they're hilarious, actually. Listen to this. They could lead a donkey out of the stable on the Sabbath, but to put the harness and the bridle and to saddle that old boy had to be placed on him the day before. They couldn't even saddle their old donkey uh, on the Sabbath day because that's work. <laughs> Can you believe it? They had to do that on Saturday. I felt sorry for the old donkey. <laughs> All night long he had to set <laughs> that crazy saddle on him. How in the world is he going to sleep? That's what, that was their law. Here's another one. If the lights were on in the, when the Sabbath came, you could not blow them out. Oh, terrible. If they had not been lit in time, then you could not light them. Isn't that amazing? You couldn't take, we couldn't lit those candles uh, if we were worshiping on Sabbath on Saturday. And uh, they had to do it. They could sit in the dark all night long if you didn't get them lit in time. Oh, boy. And here's, the, here's one that's really amazing to me. It was fine to spit on a rock if you're outside, but you could not spit on the ground. No, you couldn't do that. Heaven forbid. Because that made mud, and mud was mortar, and mortar was work. <laughs> Woo! Now, you talk about straining in a gnat and swallowing a camel. I mean, you could be going outside, ding! <laughs> what happens if you miss a bad aim and you hit the dirt? Oh, you just, you, you just complicated the law. Oh, tremendous thing. Isn't that so? We laugh about that, but you know what? I had a tradition when I grew up, and, and it was this. And it was, it was kind of interesting. We could go ice skating on a pond. <laughs> There's some that relate with this. <laughs> but you know what you couldn't do? You couldn't ice skate in a skating rink. I don't know. I'm not real sure why. But here in California, those of us who are out here, my poor kids, they, I mean, we could go if we could find a pond. But where in the world are you going to find a frozen pond here in California? It's, it don't exist. <laughs> oh boy traditions of men <laughs> oh, that's sad okay over the years the list of these hair splitting rules became longer and longer and longer apparently the ten commandments were not enough to direct their lives. They needed more than the word. As the Pharisees observed the disciples, they had come from the marketplace, we find in verse 4. That's interesting. They had come from the marketplace. Well, you know, in the marketplace what happens? Why, uh, you see all kinds of people, don't you, in the marketplace? There were those who were religious, irreligious, those who were saved, those who were unsaved, those who believed, those who were unbelievers. They're all mixed together. They're like a melting pot. There were Sadducees and there were Zealots. There were Pharisees and scribes and Gentiles. There were merchants and tax collectors. There were harlots, thieves, robbers and murderers and the like. In such a public setting, it would have been impossible for them not to rub 
shoulders with sinners. Horrible. Clearly, the Pharisees did not see themselves as sinners. They were so self-righteous. They were beyond sinners. But in Luke 15, too, it's interesting. We read that all the tax collectors and all the sinners came to him. They came to hear Jesus speak. That's amazing to me. It wasn't the religious folks of the day. They didn't want to come here. It was the sinners and the tax collectors who wanted to come here. They knew they had a problem. Now, you know, they realized that they had a sin problem. They need a new heart. So they came to listen. But the Pharisees grumbled. And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with him. In response, Jesus told them three parables about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. We won't go into them right now. We don't have the time. But read about them. A lost sheep. We know it. A lost coin and a lost son. What was he trying to tell them in those stories? He was trying to explain to them that he came into this world for that very purpose, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. He came to die on that old rugged cross to seek and to save sinners. And here they were getting after him for eating with the sinners. Sad to say, there are many Christians today who give a similar excuse. They think that they must remain in their holy huddle if they're to remain holy. They've got to keep themselves holy. They think there's holiness in a hole. I've never found it that way. I've never lived in a hole very often. But they think any contact with the world makes them impure. They had to keep themselves pure. So they retreated behind the walls of their churches and their circle of friends, never to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. Thank you, Brenda and Cameron and the youth that went out yesterday. That's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Mark also notes in verse 4, And there were many other things which they received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. If they gave something to eat to a Gentile, huh, or a tax collector, they had to wash it. before. If they drank out of it, they had to wash it before they did before they could use it. According to their legalistic rules, the Pharisees were ceremonial, clean on the outside. But this practice completely neglected their hearts. It neglected their dirty hearts. Their lives sparkled on the outside, but their hearts were never cleansed. So it is with all legalism. Man-made rules that go beyond the Word of God can only regulate our external behavior. It can never cleanse our hearts. The confrontation 
we find in verse 5. Why do your disciples walk according to the traditions of the elders? They ask. By this inquiring, they were not humble seekers of the truth. They weren't asking so they might get closer to God's word. Instead, they were trying to publicly discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. The gist of their question was, why are you and your disciples not living under the authority of our tradition? The hatred in their voices could almost be heard in their questions. The contempt on their faces could be clearly seen as they forced their rules on others. The truth is the Pharisees embraced their rules in order to cover up their rotten, corrupt hearts. That was the problem. That was the problem. It was their corrupt hearts. In living the Christian life, we must always be committed to Scripture, to the Word of God alone. Always. Nothing, nothing can interrupt the true Word of Truth. Nothing. We cannot be entangled with preserving man-made rules that substitute for the Word of God. Divine truth always must take precedence over human tradition. Always. What is true Christianity? It is entering into fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is knowing Him with every ounce of our being. It is complete reliance of a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Understanding that we have been saved by grace alone. By his death on the cross alone. That's what true Christianity is. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. And not some tradition of man, but only through the word of Almighty God. This takes us to the seventh verse, I mean the sixth verse through the thirteenth verse. And if we have time, yeah, we'll go ahead and read those. We've read them once, but we're going to read them again. Mark 7, 6 through 13 reads, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejoicing the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He said, for Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whatsoever, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. They'll stone him to death. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, 
whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. In verse 6, Jesus quoted Isaiah 29, 13, and he said to them, Rightly, rightly, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. You hypocrites. He charged them with being religious frauds who hid behind a mask of pretense. A hypocrite is one who plays religion. He puts up a front and pretends to be someone other than what he truly is on the inside. That's a hypocrite. Literally, the Greek word for hypocrite means one who puts on a mask. It's a pretender. It was used in ancient theater to describe a Greek tragedy actor who would go on stage, he'd put on a mask and pretend to be someone who he was not. Robin probably understands that. And you know, that is, that's what happened. But that's what a hypocrite is. He's basically just a pretender. He's playing church. Of all that Jesus had to say to the disciples, all that Jesus had to say to the Pharisees and to the scribes, excuse me, regarding hypocrisy, we find that Matthew 23 is the most condemning, and that's why we had the Matthew 23 read. Seven times, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Woe unto them. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You are blind leaders of the blind. You clean the outside of the cup, but neglect the inside. You strain at gnats and swallow camels. You keep people out of entering the kingdom of heaven. You tithe out of the herbs you grow in your backyard. You pluck one-tenth. One-tenth of a tiny little leaf. Bring it to the temple and give it to God. But you completely neglect the weighty matters of the law of justice, mercy, and faith. See, their hearts wasn't right. This hypocrisy is what legalism produces. Such false posturing is man's attempt to appear to, be, to appear to be what he is not. It is man's efforts to achieve what only God can produce. Only God can change hearts. Only God can save people. Having denounced them as hypocrites... Jesus acknowledged that their outside appearance was honorable. He said, this people honors me with their lips. 
They talked so pious. They sounded so spiritual. They used all the right words. They said all the right prayers. But he said, their heart was far from me. Their heart was far from me. They had a heart problem, and only Jesus could fix. They needed a transformation. Verse 8, Jesus boldly charged them with neglecting the commandments of God. They were annulling the divine commandments of God. Verse 9, Jesus further stated that you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your traditions. In verse 9. The word that leaps out at me there is experts. You know how it is with attorneys, and (laughs) that's the way some of those were. They were experts at making the law look good, changing things to however it suited them. Jesus was saying to them, you know, you guys are geniuses at being fools. You're geniuses at being fools. You were very good at being very bad. And he said, you were clever canceling the law. Matthew 5.19 tells us, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The truth of God and the tradition of the elders cannot coexist. Scripture alone must reign over our lives. Only Scripture. Next we find in verse 10 about the illustration. Jesus next proceeded to give an illustration of what he was asserting in verse 10. And Jesus gave this prime example of their breaking the scripture. For Moses said, in so doing, Christ did not appeal to one of their, tradi- their rabbis or their elders, but cited the authority of Scripture. By quoting Moses, Jesus affirmed, I'm sorry here. By quoting Moses, Jesus affirmed the dual authorship of Scripture. Jesus stated that Moses is the human writer of this passage. However, he identified that what Moses wrote in reality in verse 13 said it is the word of God. This affirmed his belief in dual authorship of scripture with God being the primary author and Moses a secondary author. Simply the human instrument who recorded it. God was the author. Moses was the recorder. Though written by the prophet, every jot, every tittle, every line, 
Every phrase, every word is breathed out by God, by the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. In this instance, this is what God revealed. Specifically, Jesus cited the fifth commandment from Exodus 20.12. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. The Pharisees inscribed used their clever minds to explain away these commandments looking for ways out. Jesus confronted their hypocrisy rightly using the law to expose their hearts. I'm going to need a drink. Okay, just a moment here. I've, <laughs> I've got my, my notes mixed up. <laughs> oh, boy. Bear with me for just a moment. Here we are. Such honor begins with the heart which in turn directs one's words and actions. This command requires that children give the financial support and care for one's parents in their latter days. You know, I'm thankful for my wife's parents. They, they, didn't, uh, they didn't have much to go on as they got in their latter years. They had some rough times and... And, and we had to enter in and, and help them considerably. And we felt with this commandment, we knew that it was our responsibility to take care of them. It would have been easy to try to do like the Pharisees did and try to sneak around all that, but we couldn't. And so we took the word of God and we obeyed and what a blessing it was. It costs us a lot financially, but you know, I've never missed it. And God was glorified, and I was blessed. You know, Stephanie and Aaron, I don't know, but I think I might be getting nearer to the end of my days. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> oh, let's hope. I'm, I, I think I've got, I'm just getting started. I'm going to go to I'm 100. <clears throat> this is so critically important that Exodus 21.17 states that a failure to obey, even speaking evil of one's parents, demands the death penalty. You know, this, this congregation this morning would be pretty empty, I'm afraid, if that law was still available. I know I wouldn't be here. You just say one bad word about your family, about your, your, your mother or your father, boom, 
You're taken out. You're stoned to death. Here is what these experts did at invalidating the Word of God. You know what they did? When they got a great big sum of money, maybe an inheritance or whatever, they would consecrate it to God saying, Corban, it is God's. It is yours, God. Then when their parents became old and they needed financial help, what happened? Well, here's what the Pharisees taught them to say. Mom and Dad, I'd really love to help you, but I can't because I've given it to God. I've given all my money to God. I really wish I could help, but I just can't. I don't have any left. It's all his. They may have used it on themselves. I don't know what they did with it, but supposedly they give it all to God. This was their tradition of those elders. Their traditions were in direct violation of God's word. Will they seek to please God or man? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Will we seek God or we seek men? It's the same choice that we must make. Either we will follow the truth of God's word or live by the tradition of man. There is no middle ground. If we follow the truth, it leads to liberty and freedom. If we follow tradition, it leads to bondage and to legalism. We must repent of any reliance upon any human wisdom in order to pursue holiness. We want to live holy lives. We do that only through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself and obeying the commandments of God which alone leads to life. Now the application. What have we learned from this confrontation this morning between truth and tradition? Let me conclude by giving us four quick action points to help put this into practice. Number one, we recognize the sufficiency of Scripture. Recognize the sufficiency of the Word of God. Today we find that there are many churches who have leadership conferences. They bring in well-known figures in the world to address their church leaders to be more of what a church needs to be, whatever that is. No matter how famous this person may be, he really has nothing to say to the church unless he speaks within the context of the Word of God. The sufficiency of Scripture is stated in Psalm 19, 7 through 9. We have it all right here. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We must recognize the sufficiency of Scripture. Number two, we must resist the hypocrisy of Phariseeism. Every one of us. We have all fallen. We have all a fallen nature within us, in our hearts. Yes, I do. We neglect the inner condition of our heart so often. So often we wear a mask. We play games. We are what we are in our hearts, no more or no less. That's why Proverbs tells us, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Number three, we must elevate the honor we have for our parents. We are taught to obey our parents in the Lord. Obeying this commandment is really majoring on the majors. We must love them. We must respect them. And Ephesians 6, 1, 3 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And notice, it says, in the Lord. Those who are in Jesus Christ, if your parents are in him, they are doing all they can to bring you up in the nurture and the teachings of Jesus Christ. There is nobody that wants to see you mature more in your walk with Jesus Christ than your parents and God, of course. Obey them. Love them. Respect them. You will be blessed. Number four, we must see the necessity of the new birth. John 3, 3 says, except you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. External religion can never give you a new heart. Only Jesus can. Looking good only on the outside cannot give you a new life. Only Jesus can. The traditions of the elders keeping man-made rules and regulations can ever reconcile you to God. Only Jesus can. These scribes and these Pharisees were the most religious people of their day. They were constantly, they knew the word of God. They knew the commandments. They gave themselves to his service. They were constantly in the house of God, and yet they did not know God in their hearts. They knew of God, but they did not know God. They had no relationship with him personally. Have these truths found you and I out today? 
Are we wearing a mask? Are we hiding something inside our hearts? Maybe there's a sin. Are we under conviction right now of a sin that's in our own hearts? I can't judge you, and you can't judge me, but God can. But thanks be to God that he's already judged us for those of us who are saved. He took that sin upon himself on that old rugged cross for me and for you. Maybe there's someone here this morning that needs a new heart. Maybe there's someone here this morning that needs a new life. Maybe you are looking to your own selves and not alone to Jesus Christ. Maybe you are not trusting completely upon him and his saving grace alone for your salvation. There is nothing that I can do, nothing that you can do to save yourself. No works of the flesh, no traditions of man will save us. It's only through the precious blood of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that cross. I love that cross. You know, that's where Jesus hung. But you know, this morning, I'd like to look at that cross and I'd like to see, really, I should have been hanging there. I should have died. I should have bled. But he did it for me. It says he took my sins upon himself that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Imputation, as the brother said this morning. But you know, I nailed Jesus to the cross. I took that hammer and I nailed those spikes through his hands and through his feet. I took that crown of thorns and I placed it on his head. I spit on him. My Savior, I spit on him. I mocked him. I took that, that sword and I pierced his side. I saw the blood flow out for me. That's what Jesus did for me. That's what he did for you. What will we do for him? Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the power 
and the passion of your word. I thank you so much for the message that you gave us this morning. And I pray just now that you will touch hearts. Maybe you will prepare surgery, heart surgery. Make us more and more like Jesus Christ. That's our desire. It's our desire that for these folks here that here at Redemption Hill that we will study your word, your word of truth, that we'll read it every day, that we will meditate upon it day and night, that it will be actually more to us than even our daily food. Because if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Lord, as we come now to the time of communion, we just ask that you will guide each one of us to look into our hearts and to help us to be able to commune with you knowing to those of us that are saved, knowing that it is alone through your shed blood that we can be justified. And so, Father, we can all eat with clean hands before you this morning. We can partake of the elements with joy knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions and our sins from us. You have cleaned us up. You have taken these rotten hearts and made them brand new. And because of that, Father, we can eat worthily before you. I pray as we do so in the moments ahead that we will do so with such joy, such in fond anticipation of the time where we can be with you in heaven, glorified bodies, glorified hearts, living and reigning with you forever and ever and ever. I thank you in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now you can take of the elements, remembering what Jesus has did in our behalf.